laugh at this next part. In a world of political correctness and cancel culture, two comedians have risen up to prove that with the right angle, anything can be funny. This is You Can't Laugh at That. Who writes these? Huh? We should have this person locked up and looked at. Live from Golden Ox Studios in Cleveland, Ohio, it's Steve Mers and David Horning on this week's episode. If you don't see, and it's especially like even in talking about different careers like STEM and stuff like that, growing up you didn't see, you saw very few women in science and engineering and plumbing and maintenance and, uh, you know, automotive careers. Very few. So not seeing that representation kind of almost puts it into a mindset of it's like, oh, well, I can't do that. Why? Well, because I don't see other people like me who do it. I feel like with the advent of new technology, like, you know, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, any other place where comedy could be found, podcasting, all of those things, then there's the opportunity to see and hear more diverse voices. Can't get enough of You Can't Laugh at That? Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash you can't laugh pod. And when you become a patron, you'll get exclusive access to deleted footage from every episode. You'll be the talk of the town. Your friends will think you're the coolest person ever. Patreon.com forward slash you can't laugh pod. Find all sorts of new reasons to laugh at your friends for not being as cool as you. Welcome to You Can't Laugh At That, the podcast where we take topics you can't laugh at and we find ways to laugh at them in the never-ending quest to prove that anything can be funny. Today, Steve Merz is with us. Steve, you're looking tan over there. What's going on? I'm waving because no one can hear the wave. Um, <laughs> I, that's It's not a joke that can carry over into the podcast, though. No. They'll just no. hear the laughing and it's out of content. Anyways, hi, everybody. As long as they know we're having fun, that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> and joining us today from Pittsburgh, PA, is Amanda Averill. What's going on, Amanda? Hey, everybody. How you doing? Doing good? Doing well. And that is proof that she is from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. The, the Pittsburghies. If that vernacular doesn't tell you I'm from Pittsburgh, then, well, nothing will. Yeah, if anyone if anyone from outside of Pittsburgh is using yens, it's like, what are you, that's who are you what trying to be? Yeah. That's where that's from. Yeah, that's where that's from. It's from. Wow. Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love the Pittsburgh accent. It is one of my favorite accents to do, and because I live here, I get to do it a lot, which is kind mm-hmm. of fun. Because I get to be, I get to pretend I'm a yinzer. That's like. To the nth degree, I get to be like, "Yin's going downtown to watch that Steelers game." We're <laughs> gonna go get an Iron City after the game down Permani Brothers. Have some hoags. It's gonna be great. <laughs> get a sandwich. It's such it's, it's such like a blunt accent. I, I don't know. It's like it's a very bold accent. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that's not a that's not an accent that you that you type in italics or any sort of you know no, flowery that, font. That is an all caps accent. That's what it sounds like when you type in all caps. Yeah, a hundred percent. One of my good friends 
dated a girl from Pittsburgh and she is, she lives in uh, Carnegie and her oh, accent. Carnegie down there. Down yeah. Carnegie. Car- Carnegie. Yeah. <laughs> and her, uh, her accent is very thick and, and she's like, she uses terms like Jimmy's sprinkles, which I didn't yeah. know that was a thing. Like you have your own language in Pittsburgh. I, I actually used to have a joke about the difference between Jimmy's and sprinkles. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it's, it's a culture. It's a, it's, it's a thing. It is. It is. I live up in Mount Washington, <laughs> up in the mountain, Mount Washington. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful view of the city. You can see everything dad's had. You can see the still building. You can see where the stillers play. You can see PNC park. A little more about Amanda. Amanda has been featured in a ton of different comedy festivals. Uh, she is, did you, did you start the burning bridges comedy festival? No, I did not start the Burning Bridges Comedy Festival, but uh, it ended up in my hands. Uh, I was, um, and I, you know, co-owned Burning Bridges Comedy Club with uh, my partner, Derek Minto, and we took over the festival from there. Didn't get to have it this year because, you know, the world's on fucking fire, and we had to cancel it six days before the festival was supposed to happen. Ugh. It was the wor- It was the worst whirlwind kind of thing. All at once, because we were checking with other like local theaters and stuff, and they're like two days before everything shut down. We're like, okay, we're gonna put in these safety precautions. We know what our capacities are. We can figure this out. And then, like less than twenty four hours later, it's like this theater, this theater, this theater, this theater. And it's like, well, we tried. It just needs to be a glimmer in the rear view at this point. Before, <laughs> like, I I don't have any plans of normalcy yet. Yeah, you know, once. I don't even know what the standard will be, but <laughs> I have, I have a vacation planned with a friend at the end of February. We've already changed the plan once. Mm. Uh, Cause I am a huge Disney fan. We were supposed to go to <clears throat> Disneyland and neither of us had been there before. And it was mm-hmm. like, Oh, we're going to go out to LA. I'm going to do some, some mics and probably do some shows while I'm out there. And then it's like, it's, we figured it out in October. It's like, Oh, Disneyland's not going to be open in six months in February. Right. (laughs) So we like, and I have other friends out there and I have friends out there who have left there because it's so bad. Nothing is in my control with it. Like I had a friend, I did a show recently. A friend asked me, it's like, so you got any upcoming dates? And I got on the camera and I was like, no, because the world's on fire. And I like just went off camera and I'm like, Oh, I should not have left the show that way. (laughs) 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 That is a bad, it's not not the best exit. (laughs) It's acceptable here though. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Don't blame yourself. (laughs) I bet everybody. It's not your cross to bear. (laughs) Everybody in the room was like, we felt that. We get it. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who was watching was like, oh. Like I can just feel the like the energy just like suck out of the room like whoosh. yeah it's like the helium out of a balloon yeah we're all we're all in the same boat but that that's like the the one thing that I tend to be after I like beat the shit out of myself about things uh, I tend after I do that I get into optimist mode and it's like okay well we're all nobody knows what the fuck's going on. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. We're all in that, in that boat together. Uh, so, you know, I try to find that common ground first. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm one of those people who like, right. Like, cause comedy was my full-time job. 
Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was all I had. And then it's like, I'm at the point now where it's like, well, do I go back in the workforce? And like, do I want to freelance? Do I want to do something else? Like, do I get some type of tech certification and then get a telecommute job? And it's like, can I just, can I just tell jokes? Can I just travel around and be a vagrant and make people laugh and talk about my vagina? Can I just not do that anymore? That was so much fun. Yeah. I really would like to do that again. Yeah. Right. So that's how we contribute to society. We talk about our vaginas. Exactly. Right. Um, and let's let's use that as a segue into today's topic. Give us a little uh, sneak peek as to what we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll go into your clip. Let's see. Uh, we are going to be talking about history, and to piggyback off of what I said about Disney, uh, one of my favorite moments in the ride, uh, Spaceship Earth, which is that giant geodesic golf ball looking thing in Epcot. So. I thought it was a golf ball too. Right? I always thought that. Everybody and then, that. Uh, and then and then it's just the part of Disney where they give you cheap food from around the world. Oh, it's not cheap, but if you drank around the world, oh boy, we can talk about that. Well, I guess nothing is cheap at Disney, but you know, like Very if you were to if you were to put it up side by side with an actual restaurant in France or Japan or, you know. It's yeah. it's it's palatable for children. So that way you could introduce them to new food or people who are more food phobic, like most American palates. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hot dog and macaroni and cheese crowd. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with those things. I love them, but there's there's more to it than that. (laughs) It's a classic pairing. Might I I suggest a glass of Franzia blush? (laughs) All right. Let's let's play the clip. <laughs> like every couple centuries, there's a purge of knowledge. You know, like the library's burning in Alexandria, for those of you who remember any part of history class. Like, that's when it, like, we lost thousands of years worth of knowledge just gone by fires. And I think I know what's going to happen. The internet's going to collapse, because that's pretty much our library knowledge now, right? We all kind of agree on that. But, you know, like, I mean, the library of Alexandria was rebuilt, and I think our library of knowledge will be rebuilt once the internet goes down. But I think it's going to be rebuilt by every woman who's ever screenshot a text message in her entire life. <laughs> it's going to be real rough out there. We're going to have to explain how we went back to hieroglyphics and all just all right so uh you, you talk about history i love i love the looking at the um like the current state of things through the lens of history. I think that's always a fun angle on, on uh, like comedically. So kind of take us through the, the conception of the bit. Um, how did you come up with it? How did you tie it together? Like toxic masculinity texts of like, you know, uh, screen grabs or whatever and, uh, and history. <laughs> so like I've said now three times, I'm a Disney fan. I'm a Disney file. I love that stuff. I was raised on it. 
So it's just my thing. And I went there, I went to Disney for one single day in January uh, for my birthday to see Star Wars. And then I went to Epcot and saw Spaceship Earth and stuff like that. Um, And I was sitting at a mic and it was like early February of this year. So that's another reason this joke needs help because it's, I've not gotten to run it (laughs) very much. Um, But I was sitting at the mic and I was just like thinking about it and thinking about like history and like libraries and how libraries are like, you know, now libraries are barely open because (laughs) who wants to share books with people? (laughs) Who wants to share anything with people? Right. Period. Just in general. But, um, but yeah, so I was just like thinking about it. Then I looked at my phone and I realized I have all these screen grabs of conversations and booking confirmations and like just screen grabs of literally everything. Like if I found a meme that I liked or if I, whatever, I just screenshot it with my phone and I'm like, oh God, what if this is how civilization hundreds of years from now remembers all of us? (laughs) They're going to see pictures of my ex's dick. (laughs) (laughs) That like, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be just like, a weird, acute, like, hodgepodge of all these different clips that people have of their lives. And I know, and I hate to hate to call us out, but ladies, we're big into screenshotting things. We are. Yeah. I, I watch YouTube videos of people who have screenshotted conversations and then put them on Reddit and then people read them on YouTube. Like, that is how knowledge is kind of transferred. And it's interesting because it's like people who like a lot of times it's those like data white knight type of dude type posts and stuff like that that are on like some of those reddit boards that these people are reading and acting out which is hilarious (laughs) some of it is hilarious like a lot of it is not but like there's this one guy that i watched it's sorrow tv uh on youtube and the voices he does with some of it and just some of the reacts and responses are great (laughs) <laughs> Even the ones where it's just him, like, showing pictures of people taking pictures of mirrors. Like, that kind of shit's just funny to me. Um, but, yeah, I was just like, oh, man. And then I looked at the emoji, and I'm like, the emoji's totally... I just thought about it. I'm like, the emoji's totally hieroglyphics. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's 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 a visual representation, like, without using words. That's 100% what that is. And I'm like, oh, man. They're going to have to try to explain why there are all these eggplant and water gush emojis everywhere. <laughs> Did you want eggplants today, Jebediah? No. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about at all. Not only do we have hieroglyphics, but we, they, we're leaving behind plenty of evidence that we worshipped cats. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's what happened in ancient <laughs> Egypt. Maybe yeah. they didn't actually worship cats. They were just like, oh, these things are hilarious. Let's yeah. build statues since we don't have phones to record them. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't stand for wet ass pussy. It stands for wet ass pyramids, actually. That yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but it's but like, yeah, like just the, all of those things just kind of culminated and 
went in my mind and I was, and I wrote the joke at a mic and I did it at the mic and I was like, and the tag I had for it was literally, it's like, okay, some of you didn't have family that loved you enough to take you to Epcot every year. And it shows like, cause like they, like the audience just had no idea what I was talking about with the burning of these libraries mm-hmm. in Alexandria. And I'm like, Oh, I wish I could pull up that. I wish I could pull up that clip from the ride. So you could just hear the narration of like Judy Dench or, because they've had multiple people narrate it, but it's just like, oh man, it's yeah. it's so it's so interesting to to just think about like people aren't going to go back and read a lot of the actual books that are published because let's face it, they're self publishing now. It's not going to happen. But like, if everything burns down, it just might all be screenshots. Like, think of a think of a conversation you had with somebody my favorite are like Facebook arguments. Cause you know that you screenshot those and you send them to people and you're like, check out this asshole right here. It's like, I'm going to say this to them next. And like, you're like working with your friends and like group texts or whatever. And it's like, Oh, look at this idiot. But it's like, Oh man, all they're going to have is the evidence of the idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, so that's it. That's how it kind of percolated in my mind and came to be and whatnot. I, uh, I I always I like to think, what if you know what knowledge did they burn in the Library of Alexandria? You know that, what did because mathematics, like a lot of our our cultural and intellectual and and sciences were developed in the Middle East. So what knowledge was in that library that could have set humanity forward if we didn't if if you know the was it the Greeks that burnt it or the Romans? I don't know. Some Maybe. some white people came over and were like, "Yeah, we don't need these books." Yeah. Uh, so yeah, somebody somebody came in and was like, "Books? Who needs them?" Right. Yeah, it was probably someone related to Donald Trump. Let's just be honest. <laughs> His ancestors. It's like an Eastern European descent. Seems about right. Uh, His ancestors. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So yeah, I love I love the lost in translation kind of uh, the the narrative that because you can have so much creative freedom with that. Um, yeah. Like, what would our descendants think of this thing that we do? And then you can just let your imagination go with that. So there's really, I mean, you could really take that and really expand on it too. And I forget. I think that there is there. Pro- I know that there is a comic somewhere who I think has this bit about like sending a dick pic through the mail, like an actual like Polaroid type of dick pic. And like the process of like, you have to take the film to go get it developed. And then once the film is developed, you have to put it in an envelope and address it and get a stamp and then send it in the mail. And then like eight weeks later, they're like, Oh, it's picture your dick. Like they're like that, that joke and that premise has kind of like been run around too. And thinking about how we now communicate so much in a love language of pictures I'll call it that. (laughs) Love language. (laughs) Love language pictures. Uh, It's interesting to think of, you know, whenever photography photographs and visually saving something wasn't as accessible. Yeah. Mm. I've been telling a joke like that for five years, (laughs) but not, not about how you got to go get it developed, but it was just like, I wonder if my grandmother ever got like a dick photograph in the mail. It's too much work. You just go over to go stand outside their window and be like, huh? <laughs> look at that. Look at what I got. No, but what if, what if you were, what if you were in like another, another state? Yeah, well then, else? yeah. Like or another, you know, 
Like it would be, it would be too much. You have to travel by horse and buggy just to stand outside. Yeah, it's not like you can thirsty. hold. You can't. You can't hold a boombox up. Then it doesn't work. It's not the same. <laughs> just about those old timey cameras where they get under the curtain and like it explodes. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they're not smiling in the picture uh, because dudes, for whatever reason, when they take dick pics, their whole face is in it too. Like why? That's not true. <laughs> So you know the, the smart ones don't put their face in it. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I've known I've known some dumb ones, and I've known some smart ones. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> comparing time capsules from like the fifties and sixties, where they you know in a hundred years we'll open this up. Now what would it be? Yeah, so now, just like now a USB. Like, yeah, I was gonna say now they'll just walk around with like a weird like a hard drive or something, and it'll just be like. I don't know what this is. They'll be like looking for things to like stick it into. And it's very much like dating, just looking for things to stick it into. And yeah. that's human that's history. <laughs> you could sum up all of human history, <laughs> like one page. <laughs> the first man <laughs> just looking for something to stick it into. I mean, even, even mythologically speaking, the Bible, Adam was yeah. by himself and he was like, I need something to stick this into. Here yeah. we go. History. That's actual history. <laughs> uh, I like how you like the Bible. It's actual history. Like <laughs> I think that's the I think that's the slogan. If you were to have a commercial for the Bible, <laughs> just like, it's actual history. With a wink. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to use an emoji somewhere. That's fair. Wink emojis. That's the more subtle eggplant emoji. Yeah. The other thing, like like the John 316, 316 is just a timestamp. Just yeah. a wrestler. It's just a timestamp. It's a wrestler. <laughs> John yeah, drank a lot of beers. A, it's a very important wrestler. Ah. For sure. Talk about toxic masculinity. Jeez. Wrestling. That's like it. I, I love pro wrestling. <laughs> I love it. I've loved it for so long. But this is the thing is that like my favorite wrestlers tend to be people who are like good people like outside of the ring like my favorite wrestler of all time is Mick Foley mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he's just like all around a good dude and like he's like retweeted me before and stuff like I asked him like because one time he did a show in town but I couldn't go so mm-hmm. it's like hey come to our open mic after your show just dumb to say yeah. And then like he messaged me the next day. He's like, Oh, next time I'll come visit. I'm like, That's cool. You know, like I fangirled I I've fangirled out multiple times over McFoley tweets and he just seems is that, cool, dude. Is that why they call it fangirl because you fan yourself? That's my excitement. That's my excitement. That's my excitement fan hands. I do have giant hands, so it could be like an actual fan. <laughs> yeah, they're moving right now. It's... No, Mick Foley is generally. I mean, he's known as a good dude. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of shitty dudes in professional professional wrestling. Like this year, a oh, lot yeah. of them got called out. Oh, I am well aware. Yeah, about all of them that got called out. That is another group chat that I'm in where we have a bunch of screenshots <laughs> of like, oh, who got called out? Oh, show me the tweet. Show me this. Show me that. And it's. It's ridiculous that 
we still have to exist in a world where that kind of stuff occurs. I just watched the movie Bombshell last night. I don't know if either of you have watched it. That's the, uh, is that the... The Roger Ailes uh, Fox News thing. It had Charlize Theron as Megyn Kelly and uh, Nicole Kidman. Oh, I forget the name of her, but she, the, the character Nicole Kidman played is the one who like came out with everything first. Oh my God, what is her name? I don't remember. And then uh, Mar- Margot Robbie's in it, Kate McKinnon, a bunch of people, the woman whose name I'm forgetting, it's like Darcy something from The Good Place who played Janet. Uh, She's yeah, yeah, Darcy uh, Carden. That's what it is. Thank you. I can never remember her last name and it makes yeah. me feel like a jerk because she's so good in everything she does. Gretchen uh, yeah. Carlson. Gretchen all, Carlson, that's what it was. Is that they all played Fox Blondes. Yeah. Fox News Blondes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was weird because like whenever, before that came out in 2016, I started comedy in like 2014 and I had a, I had, and I still have the joke. I have trouble sleeping, so... I want to get a white noise machine, but I'm too poor. So instead I just turn on Fox news (laughs) and, but I can't tell if it's working because I haven't woken up blonde and in a skirt suit yet. And it was like, and Mm. then like two years later, it's like, Oh, that I didn't realize that you all wore skirts because of that. (laughs) I'm sorry. Mm. That's uh, I mean, that is that network. I mean, there's a reason every single female host looks the same there there. And that's, and that's what the the play in the joke was. It was that like this, there's clearly something Stepfordy about this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It's a youth. Everybody's blonde because that's ideal. Apparently. Well, it's a, for, for that, it was the whole Stepford wife kind of thing. And it's all blonde and all their hair is the very like certain lengths. It's usually like, you know, a short to a longer, le- like a shoulder length to a little bit longer, which whenever Mel- Megan Kelly actually cut her hair super short was like very surprising uh, because they don't, because they, they, uh, and John Lithgow does a great job in the film as well, playing, uh, Roger Ailes. Um, he's great. He's fantastic yeah. in there, but like, you know, just like the stuff that his character has to say and like watching it. And I'm just like, Oh, this is too real. But now I understand why it all has a look and a feel. And he always, and he said in the movie multiple times, he's like, it's a visual medium. And it's like, oh boy. that is a, it's a, it's a vestige of the way things like, were I don't know I've been reading a book on uh, anthropology and it it there are multiple theories as to why there is this this toxic um, like men have to behave a certain way um, and th- there's no like re- they don't know for sure why it's the case but for whatever reason it, it's pervaded uh, through history where women have been treated as second class citizens and and to me it's like do you know how much more progress we would have as, as a species <laughs> if we were to give equal <laughs> footing to everybody? The thing about the, like speaking about the anthropology, like the anthropology of the history of everything involving that it's weird. It feels kind of weird whenever you do see a woman come up in history, like Cleopatra or Joan of Arc or something like that. Now given both of like, they were both 
super young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just disgusting, disgustingly young for a lot of things that happened to them. But like you think about that, it's like, well, how did a woman that young come into that place? What did they have to do and deal with on top of all of it? Because it's very, it's very rare to see that in history. Whereas you see so many men, you see so much other stuff. Like in the U.S., they're called founding fathers for a reason. They're all a bunch of white dudes and a lot of them owned other people, which is not good. <laughs> and, and like whenever you see those occasional women pop up like founding fathers, but then it's like, ooh, Betsy Ross. This she knitted. <laughs> yeah. This name seems like it's weird in here. Why is this name? Like it may, it makes you have a second guess a huge chunk of the history, especially in regards to like women and people of color and, and, you know, in history, because it's like, what, like the reason we're mentioning this name is because they must've had to deal with something that we have no idea about. I wish we knew where it started, but the way that I wish we knew where like the toxic, the toxic masculinity started, we could say it was the Bible, (laughs) but like, and just seeing how it's progressed now, it's just so, so interesting to me. I'm going to say interesting because I don't know of another word to use another adjective. It's a good, it's a good blanket adjective. It really is because there's so much, I mean, there's so much that there's that's unwritten that, we don't know about like you know you can guess you can look into context clues and uh i mean you know like you're saying you know these these powerful women you know way back when obviously had to have had a moment where they were like oh let's topple the patriarchy right now but there's but there's also a history of unfortunately there's also a history of women who feel the need to step on other women and almost sacrifice other women to get to where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the idea of there being limited spaces at the table. Like, there's not. Right. So the table's infinite. Right. Get a but, bigger table. <laughs> like, well, the, uh, this is the thing. If there isn't space at the table that you want to be at, or they're saying there's not space, create your own table mm-hmm. and have it be bigger and better than that little table. Because the, and the idea has been examined in comedy and stuff a lot because whenever you look at comedy show lineups, it's white dude, white dude, white dude, person of color, woman. Maybe the woman and person of color are the same thing. Or maybe it's a woman who's also a person of color who's also, you know, LGBT plus. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like that one person has all of that diversity kind of like... Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Quota filled, quota filled. And in like, I know in smaller scenes of comedy or in, or in places where it's more competitive, like, oh, okay, there's a new female comic. All right. I'm not going to get booked for a couple months because they're going to book this new one. And that's exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as far as like the improv world and stuff like that is concerned, it's like, okay, your team is mostly white dudes. And then there's probably two women on that team. And in a lot of cases, they try to pit the two women against each other unknowingly. <laughs> like, it, 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 it creates an unhealthy competition because then whenever you do see the names of women who came up through history, it's like, 
Oh, was there another counterpart to you that you just toppled as well that you might have said your sacrifice to the patriarchy or I don't know. It's just weird. It's weird to me and it sucks and I hate it because I am a big believer of there being room at the table for everyone. That comes from, you know, the fact that, that we think that, you know, there's not room at the table for everybody. That that comes from just our instincts from living in a world where, you know, of, of scarcity. Now we've gotten to a point where we create our own resources. Like we've adapted the environment to us for the first time in history. Like more people are dying from obesity than from starvation. So there is... Yeah. Like there is room at the table. There is the ability to create new tables, to expand the table, to redefine what a table is. And, uh, but we still have the old, the old hardware in there. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it's hard to switch from the idea of scarcity to abundance. Mm -hmm. Like I've had to switch to that. I like, I, you know, I can definitely say that in my like late teens, early twenties, it was not that way in my brain. Right. Like it, it just, it wasn't, I wasn't even in comedy at the time. And I know that it was like, Oh, those girls over there, mm. like one of those types of things. And toxic masculinity does play a role in creating part of that idea of there being scarcity. It's like, Oh, well you can only have one female group of friends. Or you can only have like one person who fits this demographic in each group of friends, stuff like that, that kind of causes it. And it, it all just does kind of stem from there being the idea of like, I don't know, uh, of some type of patriarchal kind of creation of things, whether it's like a, an office structure, like a structure of politics in an office or politics within a friends group. It's power. It's the feeling of power and importance to, especially if you're in a position of power, to communicate to uh, the people that you have influence over that there isn't enough for everybody. Now fight for it. Like that gives them a sense of power. And those people are now depending on that person. And you see that in politics all the time. And it's so frustrating for me to watch because it's like, no, why not create a system where we're continuing to add spaces and there's there's always need for more yeah. and uh to say there's not is it, it's like 200 years ago try to explain what's going on in the world now to them it's it's impossible so you know there's so much room for growth yeah. i think i think that there are like i love to look at the similarities though like think yeah. up to think about 200 years ago so it would be what 1820 mm-hmm and let's see. Well, you could definitely explain social injustice because people aren't treated equally. Like that's still stuck around. Right. Yeah. Like just the, the different, yeah. Like the techno, the technological side of it might not be there, but like the inequality, the, and the haves versus the have nots type of thing which again is inequality. It's just economic inequality. Like that would all still be there. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what burned in those libraries of Alexandria. It's like how to make everything not only equal, but equitable. Right. And they were like, we can't have this. Yeah. Power to dynamics. Victor Spoils. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
The power dynamics in the ancient world was kind of backwards because, I mean, people can look back and say, oh, when were there more, more women in, in, in power? But it's like, oh, you want equal opportunity to be awful? It's uh, looking nowadays, it's like, I think it's best to have self-government and have every, like you were saying, there's more pe- there should be more people at the table. Um, I think that uh, it's just it's just weird because, yeah, when you look back, it's not there's not only just the power dynamic between the sexes and different ethnic, cultural, racial, you know, groups. It's just like the, the top down, the, the pyramid of the hierarchy, you know, it's very, it's not like a building. It's more like a pyramid and it's not, that's uh, not very effective. I want to take this back to comedy a little bit too. Yeah. Like when, you know, we're talking about the, the lack of female comedians and, and um, the minority comedians, like how do we, build that table for that. Like how do we get people who are on the fence about it to dive in? Because in Cleveland right now, there are a handful of female comics. That's it. It was so, it it got so hard for me to book shows because there's only a handful of good comics in Cleveland. Like I'm not going to put an open mic around one of my shows that people are paying to see, you know, I mean, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. And I, I think the only way to really create a more inclusive environment, you can't just be warm and welcoming and everything like that. Like that's a huge part of it. Uh, don't get me wrong. It's a huge part. Uh, if the seed here in Pittsburgh wasn't as warm and welcoming as it was to me, I wouldn't have stuck around. I just lucked out and happened to, start and run into a person that I knew and just instantly felt comfortable. But for other people, like they don't have that luxury. And in addition to that, it's the representation that's so important. If you don't see, and it's especially like even in talking about different careers, like STEM and stuff like that, growing up, you didn't see, you saw very few women in science and engineering and plumbing and maintenance and uh, you know, automotive careers, very few. So not seeing that representation kind of almost puts it into a mindset of it's like, oh, well, I can't do that. Why? Well, because I don't see other people like me who do it. And it's the same kind of thing. But I feel like with the advent of new technology, like, you know, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, any other place where comedy could be found, podcasting, all of those things, then there's the opportunity to see and hear more diverse voices, which will only in turn, hopefully bring out more diverse voices as well. And maybe that even goes back to the purges of knowledge. It's like, oh, maybe there was a time whenever it felt like, okay, well, this is like this is a scarce resource we have to like keep it and hold it and protect it and the only way we can do that is to destroy it or you know the idea of keeping something so secret because of that scarcity like whether it's just like my like an open mic or even a group like of people who just like work on comedy and stuff like that like there's no reason like you shouldn't be open for everyone Unless, of course, the people who want to join are 
toxic people. Right. <laughs> then, eh. right. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't care what gender or race or religion you are. If you're a piece of shit, <laughs> I don't have time for you. <laughs> same. Right. Same. Same. Right. Same. Right. And uh, I mean, the, the, this kind of goes back to what you were saying about, you know, powerful women in history. Like, who did they have to hold down? Like, for example, Queen Elizabeth, Mary, you know, uh, mm-hmm. she, there, there was that power struggle between the two of them. Well, and which, even, even Princess Diana, if you think about it, mm-hmm. which uh, now I never get to go to England now that I said that. I, I said the name that shan't be spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, you know, there, there's always that risk of another woman establishing power. And like politically, there's that. And we say, I think that we see it a lot more in like artistic fields because it's obviously more noticeable whenever somebody we followed is now absent from a thing, but the abundance of it in places like corporate environments and things like that is just staggering and people don't even think about it. Right. Office politics, office gossip. It's like, that's not making anybody's job easier. You're just throwing a wrinkle into this thing. That's already hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. There's no room for that. I mean, I look at it as men have been running things all of history and we still have wars like you know there's it's time to to shift things what we've been doing isn't working i don't think that shifting from like a patriarchy to a matriarchy type of system in any way would necessarily curtail that because there's always going to be arguments and things like that but there definitely needs to be better representation of voices so there's a better understanding of all sides of an argument yeah. Or or there's better understanding of anything, to be honest. The uh two Native American women who are now in political positions, I forget if it's House or Senate, because I can't remember everything I listened to on NPR. Sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it was interesting to to listen to them and like the kind of sisterhood bond that they created in that like they're excited like, oh, now there's someone like me, and now I can be someone that other people can see doing things and like that kind of excitement and things like that. And they also can now help, you know, wasp white male politicians understand why doing something on a native American land or territory would be a bad thing. Right. If it doesn't apply to me, I don't, I'm not worried about it. Exactly. (laughs) Now, when it comes to addressing this issue, uh, how does how does comedy play into that? How does the use of humor play into that? How does laughing about this toxic thing kind of lead us to growth? If it does at all, what do you think? I think that it has to at some point. Like I, I think about events of my past that have been uh, not great, to say the least. And if there's and and one thing, okay, so. Uh, I was always obese. I was always fat. So I was picked on a lot in school. Uh, Not the worst thing that happened to me, but it happened. So how did Amanda avoid being picked on so much? Well, she beat everybody to the punchline. I, I mean, I was telling jokes about myself and about my body from the age of like, probably like 12, 12 on. So like middle school 
And I had watched, I had grown up watching In Living Color and Saturday Night Live and those things. So like for me, like those were a form of escapism. I was also very impressed by the physical comedy of people like Gilda Radner and Chris Farley. So, oh, I would do physical comedy type things that I saw other people do. And it kind of diverted people from thinking that I was fat. But also if they wanted to make fun of me for being fat, too late. I already have a billion better jokes than you do about it. Yeah. So that's just kind of how that worked for me. And then thinking about other things that I've dealt with, like I've not been able to turn them into jokes yet, Mm. but I know that I can, and I know that it's possible, but they're just my, there's something else that might be missing. That's just not there yet for me personally that can talk about it in a way that a larger audience could find it funny mm-hmm. because, you know, I could make jokes about the things that happened to me and I could find them hilarious, but other people would come up to me and be like, Oh my God, are you okay? You sound broken. Like we've all been in a room and we've all been in an experience where we've said a joke or heard a joke being said. It's like, Oh, the audience is now concerned for the well-being of the comic. <laughs> That's not the intent. That's never <laughs> the intent. But it's like, oh, they're wondering if they need to 302 this person or get this person some care. <laughs> like, right. because for the comedian, they probably thought about it and thought that it was funny or thought that it would be cathartic to say. And in the end, it's just like, oh, there's not a punchline that can hit universally for people or there's there's really nothing traditionally funny about this situation Mm. uh even though you might find it mildly amusing (laughs) it's such a powerful tool like you were saying you know beating other people to the punchline it it softens the damage that they're able to do you know i have i had the same experience growing up um so I mean, and then you hear that from a lot of comics too. Just the ability to beat other people to the punchline. It, you're not fun to pick on anymore. And then it eventually becomes more fun to be around you because not only are you able to make fun of yourself and take all of that in stride, but you generally can make fun of other things pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and whether whether it's other people or whether it's just things that you notice you just become far more observational whenever you take the time to observe in yourself like okay what is it about this thing that makes it funny oh my ass is so fat it'll rip pants in half yeah i get that pretty funny okay what else can i observe about other things that makes this funny so when did you decide to take that those observational skills and put them to use on stage Ugh. I mean, all right, this is where the line is crossed. Got it. No, (laughs) no, I so I started writing sketch comedy and stuff when I was in middle school, like 12, 13, because that's the background that I really enjoyed. And then I wrote my first stand up set when I was 16 and I read it to myself a bunch and I was going to go to an open mic. But then I thought, who wants to listen to the 16 year old make a bunch of fat jokes about herself? And then life happened and I didn't get on stage till I was 29. Mm. And I was like encouraged by my one friend who was like, who we went to 
this open mic two weeks in a row. And because it was a good bar and like we liked the bar and everything. And my one friend looked at me and she goes, you know, you're funnier than any of those dudes up there, right? And I'm like, okay, this is it. I called her the next week because I was like, okay, we can either go play trivia tonight with this other person. Or if we go to this open mic, I'm going to try comedy for the first time. And she's like, well, you're doing comedy. And I'm like, okay. So I went and I sat and I wrote my whole set list down while I was there took verbatim, wrote it down on a notebook and then took it up and did it and loved it so much that I went, walked to another open mic and did it again. Oh, wow. There you go. So, so like, it, it, it's, it's always been inside of me as a person, but just not, you, you don't always have that esteem to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, I'm 35. Yes, I hate to say that part that I'm 35. But <laughs> there were very few female comics for me to watch growing up who did traditional stand-up. Because, like, by the time by the time I was of the age to, like, really watch stand-up, Whoopi Goldberg wasn't doing stand-up anymore. And she always kind of did more of a character thing, which was phenomenal. Same with Lily Tomlin, who are two of like my favorites. Gilda Radner was sketched comedy. And so's everybody else on Saturday night live that came up through, through all the reruns that I would watch. Mm-hmm. I would watch a ton of it living color, but there were very few, very few females on that show um, within that cast who weren't fly girl dancers. Um, there was like Kim Wayans. That was like the only one I could think of off the top of my head. And there was like one other person. And then like you'd occasionally get female standups like Janine Garofalo or Judy Gold or Margaret Cho, stuff like that. Like very few and far between. Because there was also wasn't the abundance. Like Comedy Central was coming up. There was HBO, but there wasn't like all the on-demand type of content you could watch. There were a lot more comedy albums. I remember owning a lot more comedy albums. But like most female comedic influence was either someone you saw on sketch or someone you saw on a sitcom. Like think of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She was on Saturday Night Live in the 1984 season. I was born in 1985. So I never got to see her do that. Uh, She was in National Lampoon's Vacation. So I would kind of remember her from that. But I was a huge fan of Seinfeld. Did I know that she was more than just an actress, that she was actually like a comedian to a degree? No, but also she wasn't a stand-up comedian. Jerry was the stand-up. So it's that idea of having that representation again, like that just made it seem so much less accessible for me. But I do it now and I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay at it. Like <laughs> uh, shit, you keep getting booked. I mean, from what I've seen, you're funny. So we wouldn't have you on if you weren't. So <laughs> take that, take that, uh, however you want. Oh, thanks. But no, it's 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 very important to be able to, to share your voice because you don't know if there's somebody at that bar once bars open again that's in the same position that you were in. Uh, you know, when you decided to get on. So yeah. you know, you, you have that. Uh, that ability to do that yeah. versus me. Like what, you know, that <laughs> every other comic looks like me. So it's, you know, I don't, yeah. 
I, I mean, like, I hate to say it, but like, yeah, there's that. That's also just predominantly what's out there. Mm-hmm. It, it like that that representation is just such like a huge important part of it. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, yes, sure. I'm agreeing with you. Yes, that's it. That's all I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> and 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 it's too bad, you know. I mean, I there there's a lot of dudes who aren't fair to people who aren't like them, and it it sucks to watch. Um, I mean, from a relational standpoint, you know, just dudes being shitty to their significant others, um, and I mean that stems from this this. Like going back to the beginning of our conversation, it stems from, you know, the the evolutionary traits that haven't gone away, like the caveman brain that we still have in a world that that is not suited for that brain, that way of thinking anymore. And uh, and I, I look back at this at this all the time, and we talked about it briefly. But but Daniel Sloss is a Scottish comedian, and he has an entire special devoted to toxic masculinity. And uh, the way he approaches it is something that I haven't seen another male comic, like the angle that he approaches it from, something I haven't seen another male comic uh, approach it from. And, uh, but, I mean, I would like to, to watch a clip and then kind of discuss how he approaches it and how using humor and kind of holding up the mirror to men is one way to, to show these dudes that it's like, no, you're the asshole being able to to say that is is a starting point for change like you don't change until you realize that you're doing something wrong and there are different ways to go about doing that you can call somebody out and call them an asshole to their face but most likely they're gonna they're gonna dig their heels in defense because nobody likes to admit when they're wrong right no and so i I hate it (laughs) yeah oh for sure and and that's the tactic a lot of people use is like no you're wrong and here's why you're wrong well that that's one way to go about it. And some people might respond to that like, Oh wow, maybe I am wrong for the most part. They're going to defend themselves. That's just how we're built. It's the way our brains work. So uh, he kind of goes, he let's just listen to uh, to a little bit of his special X uh, that was on HBO from 2019. Said to me, she's like, you know, you're quite bad with your emotions. And I was like, no, I'm not. You're bad with your emotions because I know when you're having them. <laughs> I just don't think my emotions are anyone else's responsibility other from my own. So if I have a negative emotion, I'll just bottle it up and keep it to myself. And apparently that's quite unhealthy. And it turns out I also do the same with positive emotions a lot of the time. And I just come across as a miserable bastard. And I don't want that, man. Like, I look, I want my friends that I love to know that I love them. I don't want to be one of those fucking closed off people. So I'm trying to, you know, get better at saying nice things. But it's tough when you're just not, you know, fucking used to it. Like, to, if, to the men in the room, if you're anything like me and you're struggling, you struggle with your emotions, I do recommend you get in touch with them. Because it's not like having a superpower, but it is like having every other man's kryptonite. Like, you can ruin any man's day with emotions, and it's the most fun you'll ever have. Women, I finally understand your games. Like, <laughs> next time you're with one of your guy friends, if you want to fuck up his whole afternoon, like, really throw him into disarray, look him dead in the eyes and tell him that you love him. <laughs> and just watch him not be able to process that with any level of maturity. Hey, Mark, I love you. <laughs> Why? You're one of my close friends. I love you. 
Are, are you dying? <laughs> no, am I dying? Why would I know that? Are you trying to fuck me? No, I'm not trying to fuck you. Yes, you are. If you love something, you fuck it. You know the rules. <laughs> it's cliche to say, women, you're better with your emotions, but in general, you sort of tend to be. You've got to create positive spaces with each other, and you're very kind to each other. I love watching women compliment each other. Sincerely, I find it very empowering, especially if they're shit-faced. <laughs> There's nothing better than two drunk women at 3 a.m. being like, oh my God, Sarah, I absolutely love your tits. Shut up, Jessica. I would cut off my tits and give them to you if I could have a day in that ass. That's <laughs> <laughs> very, very empowering. And you, you're not really allowed to do that as a man. Just, hey, Steve, nice dick. Doesn't work. <laughs> Doesn't work. And that's a real shame because Steve's got a real nice dick. He's got a real nice dick and he won't let me see it anymore. <laughs> so, it's, uh, he does a really good job of putting together a narrative. Like, he starts by punching, like, turning on himself. So, like, he talks about he starts by talking about his sister's emotions and like she shows her emotions and she's not good at her emotions because she shows them. And so you think it's going one way, but then he turns it on himself. He's like, no, we're bad at emotions and that's bad. Every guy can agree with what he says. He's like, Oh, I bottle up the good emotions and I bottle up the bad emotions. So now I just look like a miserable bastard, which like, yeah, he, that's he, not true. He, uh, he does have a resting bastard face. It's pretty mm -hmm. bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah, he addresses that at the very beginning of the special, too. I hate to, like, blame it on history, but I think it's the thing that we're taught. But I think that women are given a free pass to show more emotion because we're considered motherly. And that, and, and, and in child rearing, we have to have some emotion to show to a child, even though children are monsters, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're the worst, but... Um, <laughs> I think that it, it's just a, con a conditioned thing. And I think through like the idea of like, especially through the idea of like the Stepford wife type fifties homemaker type thing that allowed women to show more emotion, at least whenever it came to their female, female counterparts, like, did they necessarily show their husbands the emotions they were feeling? Probably not, not initially. And then it kind of developed into that. And only now are men being so, like allowed in society to show their emotions without being labeled or called some type of horrible slur or anything like right. that. And it's, it's, good that it's finally getting there but you know it's also at that turning point where it's like oh is this too late for this or oh can we do this can we lean into this now and i think a lot of i think a lot of men especially in that kind of millennial age range that they're now like allowed to show it like yeah. uh <clears throat> it, it, and it's not feeling taboo. Mm -hmm. 
Because you figure those people grew up with those 80s movies to where those dudes weren't allowed to show emotion and they were either tough or they were the funny one or whatever. But now on that younger end of that generational spectrum, they are allowed to see more sensitive male role models and figures and they're generally being made less fun of for their emotions. So how do you, uh, how do you think in that bit, how do you think he makes that okay for men? Oh, he uses his comedy to make it okay. It's fine to tell Steve he has a nice dick. Right. He does. I, I love how he, he's like, no, women have this thing and it's great. Wouldn't it be nice to have that too, guys? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's something that you can have. Yeah. But you gotta, you gotta shift this way of thinking. Then he does that without saying you have to, think differently. Like here's the thing that you could have. Wouldn't it be nice? And also here's some comedy, like here's, you know, his facial expressions and his, the way he delivers it is really endearing. Yeah. And there's he no can- strength. There's no strength in, uh, in insecurity. So it's kind of ironic, the masculinity, you know, thing going on where it's like, I always look at men that are insecure as like weak, Mm-hmm. And it's just like kind of fun. And it's also, I think, a very uh, good indicator of at least emotional intelligence and also just regular intelligence. If a man, I, I judge, I can tell someone's intelligence just by how insecure they are in that sense. Like the over masculine type mm-hmm. of guy is usually really dumb, but it's not always like that. But it, I think generally, especially with emotional intelligence. I think it depends on what they're insecure about. Right. I yeah. It depends on where that insecurity kind of lies. Cause there's, You know, there are people who are insecure socially and it sits differently than people who are insecure with their masculinity in those types of ways, too. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely fair. How do you deal with that insecurity? I mean, everybody has a level of insecurity, but if you're over, yeah, if you're like over aggressive to make up for it, it's like what you're just making, you're you're just feeding into that insecurity. I'm a, I'm not going to lie. I'm a very insecure person in a lot of ways that nobody necessarily sees. Like I, you know, I, I'm a larger person and I talk about clothing and being a larger person and things like that, but you know, and there's some insecurity in what I say with those things on stage, but you don't see me beforehand trying on seven different outfits because oh shit I ate some bread today and now my pants don't fit right and I can't go on stage if my pants don't fit right because I feel like I'm going to explode out of them and pop a button and I can't pop a button on stage you don't see that (laughs) right yeah yeah but like but I do get to share some of it while I'm up there but conversely that's also a negative thing too because then if you start to identify too much with the persona that you create in a way that you're not willing to let yourself improve. Like my friend, my one friend was talking to me the other day and she's like, you look like you lost a little bit of weight. She's like, you know, you're going to have to write a whole bunch of new jokes because of that. And I'm like, Oh shit. Get me another piece of pie. Like, like, that's really, like, a thought that, like, you have to have as a comic. Mm. That if you do identify in a certain way, that you have to 
if you don't keep perpetuating the image, you have to redefine yourself, which for if you're for if if you're an experienced comic or a, a longer standing comic could also be more difficult. Um, like the transformation that Dave Chappelle went through from the, like, you know, for whatever he first started out to what he is now, there's definitely an acceptance and a changing, like, cause, and even going back further, thinking about like Richard Pryor and how, Whenever Pryor started comedy, he was a clean comic. Why? Because Cosby was clean. He thought that he had to fit into that certain thing and he couldn't really be himself up there. He had to perpetuate this ideal image. And, and there are a myriad other reasons why he would have had to perpetuate that image as well. But the fact that, you know, he eventually leaned into being himself and got over that insecurity uh, if we'll call it that, and just kind of was more himself on there, up on stage. Like, that just leaves you more open uh, to writing in better experience, um, I think. Yeah, like, he found his voice. Yeah. <laughs> it was less about what other people thought and more about what he wanted to share. Exactly. Yeah. We have a we have a habit of being very deterministic in, in our culture. Like, no, this is the way I am. Well, life is constantly changing. I mean, that's the only thing that's constant. We, we tend to forget about that. It's like, this isn't the way things are always going to be, you know, whether it's your weight or your hairstyle or your perspective on life. It's, it's in a constant state of flux. And we really do ourselves a disservice by saying, no, this is the way it is forever. Yeah. Let's uh, let's dive back into uh, Daniel's special, uh, Jeremy. He he goes a little bit further. We could do an entire episode breaking this this special down, but I won't do that. We just have two more clips from it. I feel like there's a lot of shit that's uh, not toxic masculinity that's currently being thrown under the toxic masculinity bus. See, I have on Twitter a lot. People saying like, "This is what toxic masculinity looks like," and I'm like, "No, no, no. That's just a thing that cunts do." <laughs> Now, I'm both a toxic man and a cunt, and I'm willing to give up one of those. <laughs> Here's a thing that I do not think is exclusive to men. I think bullying is one of the funnest things in the entire world. <laughs> now, allow me to clarify that statement for all of you nerds currently getting PTSD flashbacks <laughs> to the wedges you rightfully received in high school. <laughs> when I say bullying, I do not mean in any way, shape, or form bullying someone the society deems weaker or less than you, and I especially don't mean ganging up someone that you hate or dislike. I mean bullying your friends. I think there is no higher form of love available as a human being than staring your best friend dead in the eyes and just destroying every life decision they have ever made up until that moment in time with no mercy, no remorse. And the entire time they're just sat there being like, my turn soon, can't see if I give a shit. <laughs> think you're perfect, do you, princess? And that's not exclusive to men. If you're anything like me, which I'm going to assume most of you are, since this is how you choose to spend your time, <laughs> you're quite a nice person, consciously, it's an active decision, but your internal monologue is the most barbaric roast of any human being that has the audacity to walk into your field of vision. <laughs> It's not even a conscious thing. You're just walking down the street being like, I'm in a good mood. And your brain's like, wrong, cunt, 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 ugly baby shit dog. And you're like, why am I like this? 
hurt me. I want to kind of expand on what, what he's talking about when he he's talking about the internal monologue, which is devastating. I mean, even he makes the point like, oh, I could be having a good day. And your internal monologue is like wrong. Now he externalizes it. Uh, but me, for many of us, especially, you know, people who display toxic masculinity, you know, they do not love themselves. <laughs> if yep. they're willing to cut down on other people and manifest that, there's no sense of like, oh, I respect myself. I have confidently like self-love. And I think he points that out in a way that communicates that those people could be better. Like, He's talking to those people in a way, but he's speaking their language. See, I, I do exactly that same thing. Like I'll be walking down the street. I'll be like, and then I'll be like, Ooh, that is an ugly kid or something <laughs> like that. Uh, and I like, and I think about it and it's, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, just because you think that doesn't make you an innately bad person. But, you know, that it does explain why, as he compared to the audience, he's like, well, we all have this in common that we're all probably terrible people <laughs> in this, like, one little way. I think that it is part of, like, being able to relate to things, though, is that, like, shared idea of, like, oh, this isn't a common thing or a thing that I usually see or whatever XYZ thing is. So that's why then I have to share it with my friends who would also agree because we're all equally broken in different yet the same kind of ways <laughs> for decent people there's a barrier where you think that but you don't say to that person hey you're ugly absolutely <laughs> you know? see I, this is this is where i can't voice in because i know that i'm not a decent person <laughs> <laughs> so you're just walking down the street like fuck you fuck you <laughs> i like this is the thing like i've you know we've all we've had shows where Perhaps an audience member is being too loud or something of the like. And then you have to do something to shut them up, right? I could tear a person down all day. <laughs> <laughs> when you're on stage, that's a different story. Yeah, it, it is a completely different story. And I and I general and I don't I generally don't do that when I'm not on stage. I, and as he pointed out, he's like, if it's your friends, it's different. And I'm like, oh, I tear the fuck out of my friends. <laughs> like, that's just that's just target practice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know that normal people don't have those thoughts, but I also can admit that I am not a normal person, that I do have a comic brain that will think those thoughts, but I don't say them aloud. Unless they need to be said aloud. Maybe I'm the top. Maybe I'm the toxic person. <laughs> that's what I'm slowly figuring out. This is an intervention. <laughs> um, yeah. He makes the point that roasting into your friends is one of the most like it's, it's bonding. It's, it is. It very much is bonding. I think can't. it's also cathartic too. Mm -hmm. Right. Because. Catharsis. Yeah. Like there has to be some type of catharsis with it. Because, like, you're getting to say things that are, like, not cool and should not be said, but you know that, like, this person will not take it seriously and will be okay with it. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, he makes, he also makes the point to, uh, you know, he loves bullying people. And then he qualifies that afterwards after, you know, he yeah. just does that, that comedian tool where say something that most people would disagree with and they're going to laugh at, you know, kind of uncomfortably. And then he's going to clarify what he means by that and then yeah. bring in more jokes. So, you know, I don't mean punching down on people that society deems weak or, you know, yeah. lower of lower status, whatever. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, that's, that's a good point that he makes there too. Um, but he, he separates the goal of that joke is to separate toxic masculinity from a thing that cunts do. Well, and mm -hmm. I think that it's important that he notes that because it's one of those, it's one of those important things that every comic has to learn is that you can't punch down. You shouldn't, you can't don't do it. And there's a lot of comics who don't know that and a lot of people who don't know that and he very much understands that his audience is going to be comic nerds because let's face it that's who watches specials or comedy nerds or people who are generally fans of comedy other comics or people who can relate to him probably because they feel and hear a part of themselves in there and that goes back to the representation thing of it's like oh he looks like a stereotypical white kind of dude and he starts out that way and it's important to let those people who are listening know that punching down is not the way that things should happen and that's not the way that things should go and he does it in a very bro-y way too so he's communicating to those people exactly you know who kind of thrive on demeaning other people and yeah. A great comic would not joke about, like you said, their appearance, their sexuality, yeah. their identification. They would make fun of their actions. Actions are something that everybody can control. And that's, and that's taking it back to the joke that I wrote whenever I say to whatever random dude is in the crowd, I'm like, oh yeah, that picture of your taint that you sent to Crystal back in high school is now going to be part of the history books. Like, it's <laughs> not knocking down on that dude it's me identifying that a, a guy laughed at the idea of this finding that guy in the crowd and being like you were probably one of the people who did this even if you didn't but you know a guy who did this is your legacy <laughs> this and that's their <laughs> legacy now is a picture of is a picture of their taint and <laughs> And yeah, and it's and it's not punching down on them as a person, but it's that action. Exactly. Is it okay to punch down on someone who punches down? If so, what's the best way to do that? Oh. Coming with the, the heaters. Only, <laughs> the only thing I can think of in this case, like right now, are like roast battles and Trump. <laughs> like, which is awful. And and for him, it's like he punches down, but no matter what punch you throw at him, you're punching up. Yeah, you can't meet him head on. Otherwise, it, it, it just doesn't work. Like, yeah, I hate it's, seeing it's, people make fun of Trump's appearance. It's like we've seen it. Not only is it a hack, but it doesn't accomplish anything. No, even though he can control it. He can. He does spray tan himself. <laughs> now, the action of spray tanning himself or and doing his hair the way he does, that's well, funnier than, than what it looks like. 
Firstly, you're saying himself, and you know he has a staff that does that. Yeah, you're right. $70,000 of taxpayer money. But it is punching down on that unconventional look. But Unconventional look. (laughs) I love that. That is the most polite thing anybody has ever said. (laughs) It's so backhanded in a sense. (laughs) So polite, it's mean. It's unconventional look. It's politically correct is what that was. Calling yeah. him unconventional looking. <laughs> like you just look unconventional, sweetie. <laughs> but but punching, punching down on the look is just like, in my mind, whenever it comes to a Trump joke, is just a lead in to the actual joke. You can laugh at that. Masculinity, it's, it's the caveman in our brain that we've not been able to breed out through evolution. Yet. Evolution is an incredibly slow process. So we still have some instincts that are so fucking ancient. Like if you take a baby, like a brand new baby, a freshly squeezed baby straight from the tree, right? <laughs> if you press the palm of its hand, it will instinctively close. This reaction exists from when we used to be apes and our mothers used to have fire and that's how we'd hold on to our mothers as she swung from tree to tree. That reaction is still alive in babies now, so there's a lot of stuff in there that we don't need anymore because we're not hunter-gatherers. We don't need fight or flight, for an example, as a reaction to things. It's a very archaic way of dealing with modern problems, but it's still in there. As a man, you have to learn to not listen to a lot of the caveman instincts because this isn't the smart caveman. This isn't the one that discovered fire. This is the one that worked out it was hot. Like, <laughs> he shouldn't be running the ship at any point. <laughs> I'm slowly coming to terms with my caveman tour of understanding his bullshit reactions to things. He says masculine things is strong and feminine things is weak. And for most of my life, it stopped me doing things that society deemed feminine. And it's such a fucking pathetic way to deal with things. And I'm getting better at it. And I want to, because there's a lot of shit that society deems feminine that I fucking want. <laughs> for example, ladies, you, uh, you get to go to the bathroom together. <laughs> I want that. He has a whole bit about yeah, what it would be like if dudes were in a, in a stall together. But putting it so bluntly as, no, that's the caveman part of your brain. It's something we don't think about that often. We don't think about the fact that evolution is a slow process. And well, it's not real, but you know, okay. Well, yeah, well, and that too. It's it's either a slow process or it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, didn't you didn't you take the history course about the Bible? It's not right. Real. Yeah, you're right. No, you're you're totally right. We didn't used to be apes, and he's totally wrong. Uh, monkeys, David. Monkeys, not apes. Come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not politically correct. I'm sorry, <laughs> I said the a word. Um, but him using that not story, but the fact that this is why babies close their hands like that. That's the basic instinct kicking in. So he's, he's providing supporting details for his point. And then, uh, you know, he goes into it. Yeah. The, the idea that society deems certain things as masculine and certain things as feminine. The, the, the beginning of that bit and the way that you just pitched it there reminds me of Phil Hartman's unfrozen caveman lawyer sketch. Yeah. It's like, I'm just a simple caveman. I I don't know what this is, but I do know my client's not guilty. Too soon. We aren't that far evolved from apes. (laughs) And the toxic masculinity is we're grasping on to what we've been. And in order to get to where we can discover more of that vastness. We have to let go of that. 
Mm-hmm. So the fact that we're drawing attention to it in a way that's funny is a better way to do that than to say, well, you're doing this wrong. Cause now that's a totally different conversation than what we actually want. And what he does is he presents this argument in such a way that it appeals to these toxic men. And I highly recommend the special listen to the, to the whole special because he sums it up at the end in a way where it's like, Oh shit. Like it's really well done. It's really well put together. He's like Mary Poppins. He helps the medicine go down. (laughs) Yeah. That's what comedy is, is it's the cheese that you wrap around the pill that we need to swallow. (laughs) You know, it's the peanut butter. Belveda. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's why I'm glad that, that we brought this topic up today and we've gone all over the place with it. We've been all across the board with it, which I mean, there's so much nuance to it that you, we can't, we can't solve the world's problems with one. I could mansplain about it for like an hour. Right. (laughs) (laughs) My boyfriend always like, I'll be like, I'll say something. I'll be like, that's very, I was like, that's gaslighting me. And he's like, that's, he's like, gaslighting's not real. You're probably just making it up. (laughs) (laughs) Which which is like, which to me is the funniest fucking joke. Yeah. Right. That's why I'm a terrible human. So we could cut that part out of the episode. I don't want to steal this joke, but. Oh, that's all right. Just give him credit. <laughs> yeah, you did. It's good. <laughs> but yeah, like, it, like maybe, maybe it's just that the, we'll never like fully be rid of that part of our brain. People always disagree with me on this. Cause it's, it's, I'm not pro eugenics at all, but I do think that there is a way that we. I think. Well, hold on. Well, I mean, it's not the same thing. It just people conflate it with eugenics. But the thing is, like, I feel like if there were a way to administer some sort of change in people's brains for the better, but not on like a whole your whole brain, like your personality stays the same, you just become nicer. Like, is that so much worse than just letting things be as awful as they are in the current state? You know, but it's like... So you're, you're saying you want to put a mask on part of your brain? No, just... Uh, There's about 50% of the country that would say that it is worse. Make, yeah. it, make people <laughs> less... Make people less asshole. Like, uh, make them uh, more uh, cooperative and kind. And I, have, I don't see how anybody can argue against that benefit. So lobotomies... No, 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 no. <laughs> it's got to be easier than that. That's that's archaic. I think right. that in itself is a symptom of the problem. Uh, but <laughs> giving someone a lobotomy, boom, you've already violated that uh, threshold. But uh, yeah, that's unkind. I, <laughs> I just think I, I don't. People keep going, no, Steve, and I'm like, well, why? Why do you think that leaving things the way they are is a better outcome than fixing it? I don't think it should be like a drastic thing. I just. No personality, unless your personality is awful, I think maybe, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're going to be a dick and we can fix it, I think we should fix it. Our, I mean, we're learning so much more about our brains and mm-hmm. developing new technology. So if there's a way to rewire our brains in a way that does let go of that evolutionary instinct of, I mean, not totally let go of it, but like the the fight or flight is too strong. Like human beings are superpower. I heard it described this way the other day in a podcast and I, and I thought it was great. Our superpower is cooperation. But right yeah. now in this pandemic, we're arguing about things that we're, we're not cooperating. 
if we were to cooperate, you know, I mean, you look at these Asian cultures, you look at Taiwan, you look at, at Japan, South Korea, their population density. If they were to, if they were to handle the pandemic in an uncooperative way, like we've been doing, they would have been, they decimated. I mean, their rate, their death rate would be way higher just because they're so close together. So they had to cooperate. We, on the other hand, are not cooperating and we're seeing the impact of that. It's not political. It's, it's human. We're not humaning as best as we can. And when we're humaning as best as we can, we're cooperating, we're collaborating, we're, we're uh, adding value to one another. The and toxic masculinity is a big part of that. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, yeah. Can, we can call it toxic masculinity or can we call it giving in to our primal instincts rather than being more I think it's the same. Cognitive. I think they're the same thing. I think they're they're very similar in that respect. Like, look at, think about, think about it this way. For everything that Dr. Fauci said, Trump pretty much said the opposite. Mm -hmm. Not all the time, but for most of it. That was him not, and, and meanwhile, he wasn't even the head of his pandemic task force. That was him trying to assert his power and dominance over another person, even though the other person was trying to preach a more intelligent, a more competent, and a more cooperative way to handle things. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he needed to let it be known that he was the head of the table and no matter what he he says goes type of thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. An appealing to his base. uh, Yeah. And unfortunately, his base enjoys seeing that type of assertive toxic masculinity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and fauci yeah exactly yep, exactly Beam that's really gonna, that's gonna translate real well on a podcast now what steve just did was he leaned back in his couch and beat his chest similar to the way a silverback gorilla does to assert the dominance in it yeah anyway david um, horningborough yeah but what another thing Fauci did too is he admitted he was wrong about things that he said when the pandemic initially started because that's the the turning point in human history is the moment that we started saying we don't know everything we don't have the answers there's a lot we don't know and there's a lot and there's so much that can be said for anyone who's willing to admit that they're wrong even though as we'd mentioned earlier in the podcast it sucks to do and we hate doing it you have to do it sometimes. Right. So is it toxic masculinity or is it holding on to primal instincts to appear uh, as as dominant? It's the exact same thing. Yeah. One's just more biological than the other. So maybe defining toxic masculinity, maybe using a different term to describe toxic masculinity uh, can be a, a step in, in, a, in a more positive direction. Yeah, but the way that we were talking about it from Steve's perspective, it sounded like biological inferiority. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is not not a path we want to go down. Right. If we want to evolve, which I mean, that's the goal. If if you subscribe to Darwin's theories, uh, that our goal as Homo sapiens to get to the next level. Otherwise, yep. we're going to die out, just like all the other Homos back. You know, Homo erectus and Homo whatever, uh, all the other ones. There's there's the inferiority, but it's like people. There's the unwillingness to do something that is a trait of this, the trait of stubbornness or whatnot. But the, the inferiority is on an individual level too. It's not like a racial boundary or, or like a like a like a gender boundary or whatever you want to call it. Right. But there's also like 
if they're going to harm society, you got to stop it. That's how yeah. I feel. Right. Like if, if it's going to lead to harm down the road, I think it's entirely justified to prevent that. But you're right though. I don't like to deem, I don't want to deem people as inferior. I think that's, I think inferior may not be the right. I think defective. <laughs> right. Because well, you can fix it. The defectiveness is what the universe is made out of. Like we're not perfect. Nobody is. We need yeah. to accept that. And then on top of that, uh, I don't think it should be mandated per se, but it's like, I think, I don't know. I don't know how you think. I don't have the answers. I just I feel like there no needs does. to be something done about it. Right. I think that you, I think that a problem in a person can only be fixed if it wants to be fixed. Mm, yeah. Like that's the whole idea of self of learning and growing. And pe- there are people who just stop learning and growing. There mm-hmm. are. I have, there are people that I went to high school with who I was friends with who are still in the same job or working for the same company that we did in high school. And they're 20 years removed from high school mm-hmm. at this point. Like it's mm-hmm. not. You're not getting through to that person. You're, you're like, you're, you're not getting through to that person. If there's, if there's no want or will to change or to grow or to learn. Our education just needs to improve because then you don't need to do the lobotomies. Uh, you, you can, uh, you can improve our culture through education. Uh, you have less toxic masculinity because you have better understanding. I think people with a better understanding of the world are less toxically masculine. You know, I think yeah. that's a fair assessment. Yeah. People with more empathy. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. That's really what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that, that human superpower of cooperation that, and the baseline of cooperation is empathy. Yeah. For sure. And uh, you know what? I, I really hope if we can bookend this conversation, I really hope that this conversation is the thing that, that future generations find and not the dick pics themselves. But yeah, maybe I'm too optimistic. There's far more dick pics. Yeah, right. In existence. So. Right. There, there were conversations like this, like, like, oh, maybe the things in our heads are what determine why we say what we say and do what we do and believe what we believe. Uh, and that was in the library of Alexandria and for worse off because they burnt it. Reading is better than arson. <laughs> the whole conversation, just sum it up. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you want to burn down the anti-reading society. That's a loophole. <laughs> um, Amanda, where any, anything you want to plug uh, anywhere? Where can we find you on social media? You can find me on social media at Amanda Averill on Instagram and on uh, Twitter, uh, AmandaAverill.com for all your Amanda Averill needs and uh, Amanda Averill comedy on Facebook. Cool. Amanda, thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat with us. Mm -hmm. This was enlightening and uh, I could sit here and talk about this stuff all day long. So that's why I was like, we got to close this. We got (laughs) to shut this down. All right. Thank you guys for having me. Mm, Of course. Of course. All right. And uh, hey, guys, remember that no matter how ingrained into society it is, no matter how much it may hurt you, (laughs) (laughs) you can (laughs) laugh at that. Special thanks to Gold Knox Studio. You can find Golden Ox Studio for all your podcasting needs at goldenoxstudio.com. 
Uh, hit up Jeremy. He is fantastic to work with, professional. Uh, he makes podcasting easy. And uh, if, you're, if you've been kicking the tires on starting your own podcast, definitely give Golden Ox Studio a look. If you'd like to weigh in on today's topic, follow us on Twitter at You Can't Laugh Pod or like us on Facebook at You Can't Laugh at That and tell us how you did laugh at today's topic or how you didn't. This is all about the conversation, is what I'm saying. All right. Bye.